0: episode of the Nick Watt Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. You know it is officially the springtime so you start to think about all those remodeling jobs you've been pushing off. Well now is the time to turn your window and door remodeling dreams into a reality with Pella because we all know a new set of windows, new door can totally change the feeling, the look, the vibe of your home, plus it can add value to your home and make your home more energy efficient. Check them out on the web. PellaOmaha.com That's PellaOmaha.com and the Nickbot Podcast is brought to you by my pals at Runza. We all know about the greatness of the Runza sandwich. I mean, duh. We all know about the amazing burgers. We all know about the best french fries on the planet. But Runza also has two of my favorite things as well. They They got two amazing salads. The Southwest chicken salad with the spicy ranch. Delicious. And... The sweet berry chicken salad. You got dried cranberries popping off fresh greens. A perfect complement of rich feta cheese and walnuts. You got the creamy poppy seed dressing to top it all off. It's delicious. So get to Runza today and try a salad. Runza makes it all better. Okay, it is. Uh, it is. I guess it's. It's not. It's not Monday night anymore. It's. It's Tuesday morning. I guess it's late Monday night. It's about midnight here on uh, April fifth. Was just watched one shining moment a little while ago, and came down in my podcast room and uh, wanted to give you guys a little recap on Baylor and Gonzaga, and then I also got some things I want to get into with Creighton at the end of the podcast. So, like I said, I'm looking at it's 12:07 a.m. here on, uh, on on Monday night Central Time. Um, so Baylor just won the national championship, beat Gonzaga, and you know that game wasn't as close as the final score would indicate and the final score was 86 to 70. So that's pretty telling. I mean, let's be honest, that was an ass kicking. I mean, wow. Just a straight up old-fashioned tail kicking. And there's a lot to unpack with this thing. Um the the I got a lot of thoughts, but the first one is Ifs and buts, ifs and buts. I know, I know, I know. But if Baylor wouldn't have gone on a three-week COVID pause in in February, from February 2nd to February 23rd, if Baylor wouldn't have gone on a three-week COVID pause in February, Baylor might have gone undefeated. So from a broad sense, the outcome of this game maybe surprised a lot of people, but... Like I just said, Baylor was good enough to go undefeated. Hell, they went, what, 28-2. and two. I mean, this Baylor team was big time, man. And, you know, they go on the three-week pause. And, you know, when they came back off the pause, it took them a little bit to, to find their groove again. I mean, if you take three weeks off... You're not practicing. You're not conditioning. You're not working out. You're not. You not You're not in the gym getting shots up. They had a handful of guys test positive for COVID. It takes a while to get your 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 conditioning back. All that stuff. It's hard to kind of hit the ground running. And it was during that stretch after the COVID pause where Baylor lost two games. They lost at Kansas on Senior Night. So I mean, that's losing at Allen Fieldhouse on Senior Night. And then they lost to Cade Cunningham. In Oklahoma State, Cade Cunningham, probably the number one pick in the draft. they lost them in the semifinals of the Big 12 tournament. And that's it. Those are the two losses. So I want to start with just kind of laying out that this Baylor team was a really, really, really good team. And I get that they, you know, they weren't 31-0 like Gonzaga. But again, they could have been, and I know, ifs and buts, ifs and buts. They could have been if they wouldn't have gone on the pass. I really believe that. So... Just to try to kind of frame the game and frame its outcome, I think it's important to to lay that out first. And so, you know, you sit down and you watch that game. And pretty quickly, it becomes evident that Baylor's defensive pressure and athleticism and versatility and ability to win one-on-one was reigning supreme. I mean, it it was evident right away on both ends of the floor. Baylor flat-out punked Gonzaga, kind of bullied him. And, you know, defensively, Gonzaga hadn't seen anything close to what Baylor was throwing at him in terms of athleticism and physicality on the ball, uh, disrupting the ball handlers, disrupting every pass, every shot at the rim. But Gonzaga hadn't seen anything close to that all year. And... I've been saying throughout the entire season that I thought Baylor had the best individual defensive personnel. They can all guard their yard. They can all guard one-on-one. And I just, I loved their defensive personnel. And if you think about it, you know, Gonzaga is, you know, is so skilled and so smart and such a good passing team and, you know, they got a lot of weapons on the floor, but most teams don't have the defensive personnel to guard them one-on-one. So they have to send help into Timmy in the post. They have to maybe double Jalen Suggs on a ball screen, whatever, right? So they have to send help. They 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 get teams scrambling off of that, and that's when they shred teams with their passing and skill. But Baylor doesn't need to double Baylor can guard one-on-one, so they don't get out of position and they don't have to scramble, which changes how Gonzaga plays. It completely changes how Gonzaga is built offensively. You know, you you think about Gonzaga. They're a ball movement skill-based, share-the-rock kind of a team. And Baylor kind of made him a one-on-one ISO team. And then, like I said, just kind of punked them in the one-on-one situations. They got underneath the ball handlers, made them uncomfortable, sped them up. Baylor forced 14 Gonzaga turnovers and turned those 14 turnovers into 19 points. Huge. Huge. This this game was largely about the importance of being able to win one-on-one both ends of the floor. And it was about strength and athleticism. Because, listen, man, on the other end of the floor was where Gonzaga just had no chance. Gonzaga just flat out couldn't guard Baylor. Any way you want to slice it, any way you want to look at it, just flat out couldn't guard Baylor. Flat out couldn't guard a man to man. You know, defensively, Gonzaga likes to switch five—you know, five ways. They like to switch all the screens, and Gonzaga just flat out got destroyed in switches. And that was clear right from the jump. And, you know, baylor, Baylor's baylor got the personnel to exploit that, and Baylor's plan was simple. Just get Drew Timmy or Watson or even Kispert, mainly Timmy, but get one of those guys switched on to Davion Mitchell or Jared Butler and clear it out and go to work. Baylor torched those switches and then kind of got whatever they wanted out of them. Drives all the way to the rim. You know, because then you get a switch and Timmy can't contain the ball, so now you have to force help on a penetration. Here comes those kick-out threes. It's raining triples. All that. All because of exploiting the switches. And then the, and then the the last thing you can exploit with a team that switches a bunch of screens is offensive rebounds. Because oftentimes you're cross-matched, cross-matched into a bad matchup if you're switching all the time. So guys like Mark Vidal or Thamba, they would have like Nemhard or Ayayi on them. So they just went into the paint and owned the glass. Teams that switch a lot, it can be hard to rebound because all of a sudden you got a 6-2 guard guarding a, you know, defending a 6-9 big and he's trying to block him out. Baylor had 16 offensive rebounds for 16 second chance points. So the extra possessions that Baylor was able to get with turnovers and offensive rebounds were huge. Baylor in total, think about this now. Baylor in total took 18 more shots than Gonzaga did. Gonzaga had 49 field goal attempts for the game. Baylor had 67 field goal attempts for the game. The turnovers forced... And the offensive rebounds were huge. And I think a lot of that comes back to the ability to win one-on-one. And then the other thing also with the offensive rebounds, and it, it, the other thing that offensive rebounds do, there, there are two schools of thought on, on how to defend a great transition team. You know, teams that want to get out and run. There are two schools of thought. You can just send nobody to the offensive glass and send four or five guys back, so you so you're you know you're you have bodies back and you're able to slow a team down with that. That's one school of thought. Or the other school of thought is to crash the offensive glass because you can't run if you can't rebound, and it's harder to run when you're having to wrestle guys in the paint for every single rebound. So. The other thing the offensive rebounds do is slow down a great transition team, which Gonzaga is. So instead of leaking out and getting out and running and getting easy shots that we've all seen Gonzaga get a million of in the open floor, now Gonzaga's in a fist fight in the paint. Now you know Nemhard or Suggs or someone is is wrestling Mark Vital in the paint instead of getting out and running. So so it was huge. Those offensive rebounds. There's a domino effect to them. It slowed Gonzaga down. It got Baylor second-chance opportunities. So it was huge. I mean, but just defensively, Gonzaga was just a mess. Gonzaga was just a mess defensively. Got destroyed in switches, couldn't defend the dribble. And then, you know, think about this, too. Heading into the game, Gonzaga had played 20 possessions of zone all year. 20 possessions of zone for the entire season. But Gonzaga had to play a bunch of 2-3 zone and 1-3-1 zone in that game. So what does that tell you? It tells you Gonzaga just couldn't guard Baylor at at all, man-to-man. It tells you that Markview going zone showed the desperation of the situation hadn't played hadn't played zone but 20 possessions all year which basically means you haven't played zone all season but in the national championship game against Baylor you had to play zone because you were in a code red situation trying to defend trying to defend Baylor man-to-man I mean that's when when Mark views having to go two three zone or one three one zone. It's just like listen, man, we we got we got no chance of guarding the man to man. So that d- defensively, defensively Baylor was mind-blowingly good, but then defensively Gonzaga was just a mess on a variety of levels. And you know what, man? Like th- those are kind of the big elements of the game. And, you know, you just look at Baylor, and you know what? They got a lot of what you need to win in basketball in 2021, and in particular college basketball, but really any level. They they check a lot of the boxes of what you need to win in basketball in all days. First of all, all, they're a great three-point shooting team, number one in the country, led the country in three-point shooting, 40% as a team. They got five guys shooting better than 40%. Number two, they got multiple ball handlers and creators on offense. Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, Macy O'Teague, Adam Flagler. They can all handle it. They can all create. They can all get in the lane. They can all finish. They can all distribute. They can all shoot. And then, you know, we talked about the the defensive personnel. They got interchangeable defensive parts where they can switch a lot of screens and hold up. Mark Vidal can basically guard one through five. Macy Oteague and Jared Butler can guard big. You know, they can, they can guard big guards. They can guard smaller guards. And then they have the best defensive player in the country in Davion Mitchell. And then lastly, they are old and they are experienced. Their core group, has, they've been together for a couple of years. That I mean that core group won a lot of games last year. That that you you know that that group for Baylor last season, you know, they were 26 and four. I mean, that 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 core group had has been through a lot together and they won a lot of games together. But they're older. Jared Butler, Jr., Davion Mitchell, Jr., Macy Oteague, Sr., Mark Vidal, Sr., Matt Mayer, Jr., Thamba, Jr. I mean, so they're old. Interchangeable defensive parts, multiple ball handler creators. They can shoot the three at a really high level. They just check a lot of the boxes that you need to win in basketball and in particular college basketball. And, man, did they rise to the occasion. Whew. I mean, they were ready to go, weren't they? Man, I mean, from the jump, just straight up, opening bell, Mike Tyson style, whack, haymaker right away. I mean, I know Gonzaga rallied to get it to 10 at half, but that, that game, for all intents and purposes, was over in the first 12, 14 minutes of the, of the first half. was over. They were ready to play. They rose to the occasion. Pretty impressive. And then, you know, when you look at Gonzaga, now, I mean, I don't want to do this thing where Gonzaga goes 31-0 but loses one game in the national championship and then turn on the mic and act like they stink and suck and they were actually a bunch of bums and da-da-da-da-da. I don't want to do that. I, I I don't want to do that because this was a, a, an unbelievably good team. You don't go 31 and 0 if you aren't a really really freaking good team. But I feel like we can acknowledge all that but then say, you know, like listen, they I think I think Baylor exposed some things and I, I think watching that game kind of confirmed a handful of things because that's the thing. For me, watching watching Gonzaga get dismantled by Baylor confirmed a lot of the things that were floating around in my head that I was kind of internalizing in terms of concerns that I had about Gonzaga throughout the year, even in the midst of them just pounding teams, like I, th- there were things that like ah, eh. because. Uh, Listen, it's it's silly and stupid to get nitpicky when Gonzaga is just blasting everyone and is undefeated during the season. You know what I mean? Like if Gonzaga wins another game in the middle of January and improves to twenty two and zero, and I tweet out my concerns, like I, I kind of get painted as a hater and a Debbie downer, right? They they blast Loyola Marymount by you know or, or Pepperdine by thirty, and I'm like, well, actually, Gonzaga has issues with that. People are like, what's this guy talking about? But I had I had concerns floating in my head throughout the year. And I just, when people are like, man, this is the best team I've ever seen. I'm like, eh, I, no, I, I, no, 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 no. You think they're better than 2001 Duke? Jay Williams, Shane Battier, Carlos Buzo, Chris Duhan? You think they're better than them? I mean, you think they're better than even 08 Kansas? Mario Chalmers, Brandon Rush, Darrell Arthur, Darnell Jackson, Sasha Khan, Sharon Collins? You think, they're better than, you think they're better than 2012 Kentucky? Anthony Davis and those guys? I don't know. I mean, even on the pod uh, a week ago, I answered some emails on the podcast, and one of the emails at, asked me, is Gonzaga the best team you've seen in the past decade? And I said no, and I didn't really hesitate because I said on the pod that I, I'd take 2018 Villanova, Brunson, and DiVincenzo and those guys over this Gonzaga team in a heartbeat. And the reason why I I, I I feel that way was and, and felt that way was this. My my concerns with Gonzaga all year were number one, overall athleticism and then just raw strength. Other than other than Jalen Suggs, I wouldn't say any other guy on Gonzaga's roster is a great athlete. Corey Kispert isn't. Drew Timmy really isn't. Joel Ayayi is kind of a thin, slender, smooth glider. But he's not a physical guy. Andrew Nemhart is is isn't super explosive and, and he's not a an elite explosive twitch twitched athlete. And then I, I wouldn't say they are a, a physically overpowering, super strong group either. Now, listen, I'm not saying they're a bunch of pusses who are weak and soft all that stuff. I, I'm I'm not saying that. But again, other than other than Jalen Suggs, I don't know who I would say is just a grown man, junkyard dog, kick your ass athlete or strong, tough guy, like Davion Mitchell, like Mark Vital, like for Villanova's team, Jalen Brunson or Mikael Bridges or Dante Divincenzo or, or Eric Pascal. Like I just I don't I don't know, other than Suggs, just what wasn't just an overwhelmingly athletic and strong team. So that was number one. Then number two, I never felt like Gonzaga had that next-level switch they could hit on defense to just, just turn it up and smother a team. And I think all really, really, really great college teams, because it's hard to do that in the NBA level. It's hard to, like, you're not going to go heat up Damian Lillard and, like, make him pee his pants. Like, come on. But in college, like, y- you can heat up college guards, right? Like, I think I think all really, really great college teams, certainly all-time great college teams, have that switch they can hit on that end of the floor. I don't think Gonzaga had that. I even said after the Creighton game, like, I, I feel like Creighton just missed a lot of shots. I didn't feel like necessarily Gonzaga was taking Creighton out of a lot of what they wanted to do or whatever. I, I, just, I didn't feel like that. And I think I think a lot of that comes back to overall athleticism and strength. But, but it's also just the fact that Gonzaga is more of a finesse, offensive-minded, outscore-you type of team, which is fine. But I mean that can bite you because sometimes, sometimes I think they were so gifted offensively that they just knew that it, it no matter what they were going to score ninety five points and win. And that was always a bit of a concern for me because even when I, I just I don't know I watched them play and I didn't, I didn't feel like man they are they are straight up a boa constrictor on defense where it's just like everything shut down. And I feel like all those things got exposed by Baylor. Now, some would say, I haven't got a tweet about it, some would say, West Coast Conference, Gonzaga's conference, just so weak. They the, It all caught up to them. They wouldn't have done what they did in a power conference. And, you know, that's such a, a – listen, do I think Gonzaga runs the table in the Big 12 or the Big 10? I don't. But also, at the same time, up until the Baylor loss, Gonzaga had crushed – This season, Kansas, Auburn, Virginia, West Virginia, Iowa, Oklahoma, Creighton, and USC. So let's also not have a revisionist history here. Like like Baylor's the first power conference team they played and they lost. No, I mean, every team I just named, they kicked all those power conference teams' ass. All of them. But I feel like I can say that and... And, you know, this isn't meant to take away from Gonzaga's incredible accomplishment because I bet even if Mark View was sitting in my pod room right across from me, which would be awesome because I'd love to pick his brain, I bet even Mark View would admit, like, yeah, you know, the night in and night out grind in a power conference compared to the West Coast Conference is just different. And you know what? It is. That's a water is wet, sky is blue comment. If you think the night in and night out grind in the West Coast Conference is even anything close to what it's like in the ACC or the Big Ten, you're crazy. And maybe, I mean, maybe a lot of the things that you can get away with in the West Coast Conference kind of eventually kind of caught up with them against Baylor. You can switch every screen and not get destroyed defensively when you're playing Pepperdine. Harder to do that against Baylor. I mean, Baylor's athletes are a little different than Pepperdine's and Pacific's. So, like, I do think some of that stuff got exposed. But again, I I don't want to, and I'm being probably talking on both sides of my mouth here. But I think we're all you know we're all not stupid, and we can like compartmentalize and say you know this can be true, but this also can be true. Like because I I really don't want to play this game where Gonzaga goes 31 to 0 and loses one game, and now they suck because I, I don't think that's true. But I I, I think we can all be grown ups and compartmentalize and acknowledge how good Gonzaga was and how impressive a run they had while also acknowledging some of the shortcomings on that roster and, you know, some of the advantages of playing in the West Coast Conference. Right? So there you go. I mean, again, this game wasn't rocket science to figure out. It was just straight up ass kicking. It was like, one, mano y mano, check ball, I can guard you, you can't guard me. What are you going to do? Check ball, I got. I don't need help, I got this guy. Check ball. This cat can't guard me. Get out of the way. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. And based on what I saw, I think if they tipped up and played again tomorrow night, I think Baylor would win again. That's how that's how dominant I thought Baylor looked. So, congrats to Baylor, man. Again, Scott Drew, what a remarkable job. One of the best rebuilding jobs into a power conference you'll ever into a, a power you'll ever see in college basketball. I mean, Baylor was a disaster. When he arrived in 2003 disaster by far the worst job in the big 12. And now here they are national champs, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. All right, coming up next, do a little, a little Mike Greenberg teaser. Why do I think Christian Bishop is transferring? I'll tell you that. And I'll tell you what I think of his decision next but first let's take a quick break all right let's take a quick break from the podcast to talk about white castle roofing you know one of the best decisions i've made was calling white castle roofing when my roof had some hail damage back in the day to my old house in omaha i needed experts i needed people i can trust that's white castle white castle roofing made the entire process so easy and so smooth and they did a great job they communicate every step of the way in their crews they're knowledgeable they care about the details and cleanup is a top priority so if you need experts you can trust White Castle Roofing is the answer. In fact, I'm dealing with a leak in my roof in my new house, and you know who I called immediately? Of course, White Castle. Ben from White Castle, came to the house last week, took a look at things, and we already got the ball rolling on what to do next. When it comes to your roof, you need people you can trust. And trust me, you can trust the good people at White Castle. Check them out, whitecastleroofing.com. White Castle Roofing, built with trust, Proven by time. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my friends at Runza. There is nothing better than hearing from an old high school football teammate, like my former offensive lineman, Brett Altman, on Twitter, where he went out and he tried the Ruben Runza and loved it. That's what I'm talking about, baby. And my dad, my father, he got his Ruben Runza game right. He gave it two thumbs. Up. Again, Reuben Runza is available at all Runza locations. It's everything you love about a Reuben wrapped up inside the greatness of a Runza sandwich. So make sure you stop out to Runza, try the brand new Reuben Runza. And speaking of Runzas. Don't forget that every runza is made to order. I Meaning you can add anything in the kitchen within reason to add on a runza since every one starts as an original runza you can add pickles or ketchup or ranch whatever it is up to you. So whether you get a Reuben runza or get creative and add something to an original runza, you know it's going to be delicious. So head out to Runza today and while you're there, tell them your buddy, your pal, Nick sent you. And the Nick Bob podcast is brought to you by my friends at Pella Windows and Door. You know, when it's time to get a new set of windows or a new door, you got to go with Pella. Why? Because they can provide window and door solutions to any home. They can turn your window and door modeling dreams into a reality. And Because the people are great. Vince and Steve and Clint and Brian, the whole gang, they are all fantastic. And you know what else is fantastic? Knowing that you're going to be working with Pella and only Pella the entire time. Do you realize that when you work with some other window companies, all of a sudden questions pop up. Like, who's going to install it? Who's going to pre-finish it? Who's doing that? And before you know it, you're working with like four or five different people. Oh, my God. You want the convenience and simplicity of working with one company, not three or four. That is Pella. Check them out on the web. PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Back to the podcast. All right, so I've got a lot of tweets and emails regarding the news of Christian Bishop's announcement that he's transferring from Creighton and wondering what I think, what happened, why is he doing this, on and on and on. Nick, what do you think? So let's get into it. I mean, I'm sure just like you when you saw the news, let's first address the elephant in the room on this topic because naturally when the news hit, most wondered, how much is this about Coach McDermott's comments in the locker room after the Xavier game? And, you know... Honestly, I think it's naive to think that on some level it didn't play some role. And you know, only Christian Bishop knows how big of a role it really played. My guess is that it wasn't it it made the whole situation easier for him or the decision easier for him to make and the situation easier for him to consider leaving, like. But I really really don't think it his decision was all about Greg McDermott's comments in the locker room. I really don't. And, you know, to me, anyone anyone that is is saying that is just, I think they're full of it. I think they are full of it. Because, you know, from my sources and reading the situation and, hell, even reading Christian Bishop's dad's tweet, I think this was largely about a position thing where Christian Bishop wanted to play a different position. Christian Bishop is playing the five at Creighton and bishop wants to play the 3 or the 4. And and my my guess is he thinks that his path to the NBA is at the 3 or the 4 and not the 5. I I think that's what this is mostly about. I think that is the main motivating factor behind all of this. Because you know Christian Bishop's dad took issue with someone on Twitter saying some negative stuff about Christian his son, you know, and his decision to transfer and so this is this is Christian's dad's tweet. He said uh Quote, Christian uh, Christian sacrificed his body and time and played a position that the team needed him to play. There comes a point that you allow him to blossom into what he was meant to be. If you have a problem with his decision, direct your negative comments to me. Three years playing the five? Question mark. And that's the tweet. So, I mean, there you go. Played a position that the team needed him to play. Comes to a point... That you allow him to blossom into what he's meant to be finishes it by saying three years of playing the five. I mean that pretty much lays it all out. So real quick, little recap on the the backstory of playing the five because some people might be like, why, why 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 is he so mad about playing the five? Like because keep in mind, Christian Bishop is only six foot seven and he wasn't really recru- recruited to play the five. But two years ago, Martine crumple who was playing the five announced that he left early to go play pro, and which is understandable because he tore his ACL like three times. Sam who who is from Australia, made a decision to leave Creighton after one year and go overseas and play pro ball, who was another five-man. And then Jacob Epperson has a compound fracture, gruesome injury in October right before the season started. So all of a sudden... Creighton was really thin at the five, and Christian Bishop was forced to play the five because Creighton had basically no other option. So due to guys leaving and injuries, Christian Bishop was the only option to play the five. And, you know, initially when that move was made, it felt like it was a temperate, like Creighton was just going to put them out there, make it work, get through it, and then eventually kind of move people back to where they were going to be. But... Then Christian Bishop started flourishing at that five spot. And Creighton started winning as a team. And then Creighton got really hot at the end of the year two years ago. And they win the Big East regular season title. And they were poised to be a 2C in the NCAA tournament before COVID canceled the big dance. So he stayed there. Which, obviously, if you're having success, you would, you know, if you're Greg McDermott, you're not going to be like, all right, no, you're not moving back. Because this se- then this season comes and Christian Bishop really took off. He was awesome all year. So it's really kind of crazy that due to necessity, Creighton stumbled into using Christian Bishop as a small ball five and did a ton of unique stuff with him, playing five out at the top of the key. You got pick and roll lobs, handoffs, slip dunks, backdoor passes, drives. All that stuff was because Christian Bishop had had a unique skill set being undersized and mobile with some playmaking ability. And keep in mind, Christian Bishop grew 12 inches in high school. So he was a guard, and then he grows a foot, then some crazy injuries happen, and now he's got to play the five, and then all of a sudden it's really working out for him. But it's just, it's, it's amazing how the sequence of events led to you know, Christian playing the five and balling. And I guess Christian Bishop doesn't want to do that anymore. He wants to play the three or the four. So he wants to go somewhere that will be more suited for him to, to be able to do that. I think that's what this is really all about. Now, I will say, I and was, I was thinking more about it over the last handful of days, in, in, in and I try to put myself in Christian's shoes for a second. Because he may be sitting here and thinking, okay, I don't want to play the five anymore. And maybe all the guys that I was with on the floor for the past two years and winning a bunch with, and Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, and Mitch Ballok, and maybe most important, Marcus Zagorowski, might all not be at Creighton next year. They might all be gone. So do I really want to have a brand new starting five with me out there? Like, I can understand how he's thinking that. Again, Denzel, for the record, Denzel Mahoney is the only one who's made a decision as I'm recording this but it's possible all those guys are gone most importantly zegarowski so maybe maybe christian bishop is kind of sitting here thinking like i don't want to run it back with a brand new team at a position that i don't want to play i can i can wrap my mind around that and i think it's it's all of that mainly the position thing that is the biggest motivating factor behind this decision to transfer for christian bishop and like I said, I can wrap my mind around all that, and I can understand all that. But just because I understand someone's line of thinking or rationale behind a decision doesn't mean I agree with it or think it's smart. I love Christian Bishop. He he's he's he was one of the most fun players to watch grow and blossom into a great player. At I mean, it was it was a joy to watch him improve and into a great player. But I think he's making a big mistake. I think he's making a mistake. The reality of of Christian Bishop is he's always been a tweener. He's always kind of been a guy that you don't really, okay, you, even when he arrived here, like he didn't quite know what position he was. Because on paper, he doesn't have the size to be a five. But he also doesn't really possess the shooting or ball handling skills to play on the perimeter. He, he, was, he was a tweener, positionless player when he arrived at Creighton. And I think the sequence of events that led him to the five spot was actually a blessing for him. Because, I mean, listen, the proof's in the pudding. Look at the last couple of years and how well he played. I think it actually was a blessing for him. Again, I love Christian Bishop, and I thought he was awesome at Creighton. I cannot say that enough. But what Christian Bishop is failing to realize is that the way Creighton used him at the five is what made him so good putting him at the top of the key with all that stuff I laid out a second ago. He's an explosive vertical athlete, so the pick roll lobs with shooters toeing the arc so teams can't help were great for him. And then allow him to do stuff with the ball in his hands at the top of the key kind of unlocked him into being this tough, tough, tough matchup. I mean, he's a five-man that rarely – how many times did Christian Bishop get conventional, like, post-up, back-to-the-basket, Kevin McHale, drop-step, jump hook, like – Typical five-man stuff. Very rarely. He got his points running the floor, laps to the rim, ball screen slips, fake handoff drives, all that. Like, that's how he scored. And all that stuff worked for him because of the position he was at, how he was being used, and who he who was defending him, which was the other team's five-man, who is usually a slower, not as laterally gifted guy that you stretch away. From the basket, you're sprinting around ball screens. You're able to outrun them on slips and get to the rim. Again, a lot of that stuff worked because of the position he was at and who was defending him. Not to mention how talented some of the other guys are on the floor. Right? I mean, you're playing with Marcus Zagorowski was a preseason Big East Player of the Year, preseason first-team All-American. I mean, like let's be let's be let's keep it real but then so but Christian bishop on the wing Christian bishop playing the four that's a totally different deal because now everything changes i think sometimes you have to you have to consider a few things what's your skill set and who is defending you i think who is defending you and how you are used for certain players is enormously important to take into consideration when you're kind of assessing a guy especially especially as we move into this positionless era of basketball because let's be, again the reality is Christian Bishop can't shoot hard to play the th- the 3 or even the 4 when you can't shoot and Christian Bishop can't shoot and you know Christian Bishop looks decent handling the ball because he has a five man guarding him so he's got space. He's not dealing with pressure on the basketball. Think about Christian Bishop with someone underneath him who can guard. Think about Christian Bishop with Jared Butler or, you know, Macy O'Teague guarding him or Mark Vidal guarding him on the perimeter. hey think about christian Bishop playing on the perimeter as a non-3-point shooting extremely limited ball handler I mean does that sound like a great thing I don't think it does so it's just frustrating because again I love I love christian Bishop and i I think he's a really really good in the fr- I think he's a really really good player in the framework and system of how creighton used him And you know what? Some guys can defy a situation and defy a system. You put LeBron James in any situation, any system, he's going to be really good. But some guys need the right situation, the right system. Some players are excellent in a specific role, in a specific system or situation. And to me, that—that that is Christian Bishop at Creighton. And it's just too bad that maybe Christian Bishop doesn't doesn't realize that. And again, I really like Christian, and I'd love, I would love to eat crow on this pod and say, man, was I dead wrong? And Christian Bishop goes out there and he he's balling somewhere at the three of the four. I would love, because I, I love the kid. He's a great kid. He's a great player. All that stuff. But I I just I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Again, if he's going to go play the three of the four somewhere, I just don't see it. Again, he can't shoot. And you think he can handle the ball, but that's deceiving because you have to think about who is guarding him. It's easy to handle the ball when you, Nate Watson is guarding you. You know, or Zach is guarding you. A little different when Paul Scruggs is guarding you. Like, Because to be honest, I think this school of thought hurt Denzel Mahoney this year. Denzel Mahoney, here's some people: don't Denzel Mahoney wanted to be on the wing. He didn't. He didn't want to. He didn't want to be at the four or play the small ball five this year. So all year he was being defended by a wing instead of a four or five man like he did last year, two years ago, whatever it was. And guess what? You found out Denzel Mahoney isn't quite as good at driving the ball into the paint when a wing is on him compared to a four or five. I Personally, I thought Denzel was more effective as an offensive player a year ago. Why? Because of how he was used and who was guarding him. Last year, he was almost always at the four spot or the small ball five spot when Creighton would go super small. So he was a tough, tough matchup you know he's got nba aspirations and he didn't want to play this the, the small ball 5 he wanted to be on the wing i think he 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 didn't have as good of an offensive year in my opinion and i mean i hate crapping on people's dreams you know i really do even it, you know, a year ago, Davion Mintz had a dream of of going to the NBA and so he transferred to Kentucky. He has a meh year. Kentucky was awful. And guess what? He's not gonna go to the NBA. And I remember on the podcast last year, you know, I kind of crapped on his decision. And my guess, I think he got wind of it, and I think he's really, really mad at me. Davion Mintz was. And I, I still feel terrible about that. Because Davion's a good player, he's a good guy. And I, you know, I will say what's frustrating about this because listen, Christian might listen to this and be like, "Man, fuck Nick Ball." Well, okay, like if you want, to, I guess to hell with all the times I've said great things about Christian on the pod or Davion on on the pod on on the pod or live on the air, national TV calling a game on Fox. I've said a thousand great things about Davion Mintz. I've said a thousand great things about Christian Bishop. And you know, if I turn the pod and say I think these guys are crazy, but they think they're going to the NBA, then. I mean, whatever. It's a part of the deal. You sit behind this mic; you're you got to keep it real. You're not going to please everybody. You're going to say some things that piss some people off. I didn't think Davion was an NBA guy. Doesn't mean I don't think he's a good player. I don't think Denzel Mahoney is an NBA guy. Doesn't mean he's he's. I, it doesn't mean I don't think he's a good player. And I don't think Christian Bishop is an NBA guy. I don't think he's a three or a four. That does not mean I don't think he's a good player. But you know what, man? It's their lives and it's their dreams. If if they all want to pursue their dream, more power to them. And I hope, I hope they all achieve their dreams. I really do. But that doesn't mean I have to lie about it, a lie about how I feel about their decisions on the pod. I mean, I wish Davion nothing but the best. I wish Denzel nothing but the best. I wish Christian Bishop nothing but the best. And I'll be rooting like hell for all those guys. And with Christian, do I think he's making a mistake? I do. I do think he's making a mistake. Because I don't think he can play the three or the four. And I think the reason he was so great was because of how Creighton was using him. And he was great. So there you go. That's that's how I see the Christian Bishop situation and him transferring. I don't think I do. Okay, did Greg McDermott's comments in the locker room make it make it easier to maybe make this decision? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I think it's naive to think that on some level that those comments didn't play some role on it, some because some kind like yeah. But I think it's this is largely about wanting to not play the five anymore and want to play the three, or the four, the three of the four. So that, that's how I see it. That's how I see it. All right, that'll do it for the pod, man. It's almost 1 o'clock in the morning, man. I need to get my ass to bed. Hey, be on the lookout. Bo Rude and I, we recorded a wine pod spring football preview. Be on the lookout for that bad boy. It's going to drop soon. We were we, we were drunk. We 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 talked about Nebraska spring football. Had a really good conversation. So be on the lookout for that. But a great way to make sure you don't miss that is subscribing to the podcast. Click that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any of the pods we drop. Uh, all the content as uh, we kind of we continue to kind of hammer away at this thing, man. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the pod. And we'll see you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast.